Well, we are continuing our series in John's Gospel. You know, the wonderful gift of expository preaching is that it brings us, as we go through the books of the Bible, it brings us to topics, very many different topics. Topical series, there's nothing wrong with doing a topical series, but, but I think the most instructive and I think most helpful and faithful way of treating scripture is expositorily, is to go through verse by verse, to go through chapter by chapter books of the Bible. And the wonderful thing is, as you are doing uh, an expository work in, in a book, you do, as you come along, you, you get to hit topics that you don't have to say, okay, I, I want to hit this topic. It just comes up. And uh, this morning, we're going to hit a topic that I have been actually wanting to share on for some time, but knew we were going to get here. So just decided I would wait. It's a topic that um, is an interesting topic. I, I did this survey many years ago in one of the churches. Um, in, down in Charlotte, and um, when I was serving at that church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I asked the church, I said, who, who would rather have a root canal than do evangelism? And more people than I realized raised their hand. That they would say, yeah, I mean, a root canal is much easier. You're done with it. You're out of there. You, you know, you get a shot of Novocaine. It doesn't hurt. You move on. Evangelism just is hard for me. Evangelism is a challenge. And, and, and I get that. I get that. And this morning's passage is going to speak about that in, in a very helpful but unique way. And, uh, and, and I want to let you know up front, just that's where this passage is, is going to take us. And, and I want to prepare your hearts. Years ago, when David was, my son David was 16, so I'd say about 15 years ago because he's 31 now. Um, Marilyn was homeschooling our three children, and she decided on a Monday morning, it was my day off, she decided on a Monday morning that it was, the t- it was time to... Um, expand David's universe by sh- having him sit down and watch Pride and Prejudice. And I am, I am not a Jane Austen or Emily Bronte or whoever writes these things. I'm not, I'm not really that big of a fan. Um, th- I'll watch them with Marilyn because we've been married for 35 years and I want to be able to have a conversation with her about it. But they're just, they're just like Downton Abbey. They're soap operas. And, and so, um, so she said, listen... I want David to watch Pride and Prejudice. He's 16 years old. There's no way on earth he's going to watch this unless you sit down with him and watch it. And it was like, it's my day off. I am not sitting down. And it's like, honey, you have to. David won't do it. So I said, okay. So we both sat on the, on the sofa. Marilyn turns it on. Now, this is the six-hour version. This isn't the two-hour one. This is the six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice. And uh, Colin Firth plays uh, Mr. Darcy. And so, so we sit down, and it starts. And, and this is the mistake the, the director and the writer... I mean, this is, they shouldn't have done this, but they introduce Mrs. Bennett right away. Mrs. Bennett is every husband's worst nightmare. <laughs> she is the woman that you would say, 
I'm going to live in the corner of a roof because this is a contentious woman. And so like the first 15 minutes of Pride and Prejudice is Mrs. Bennett. And about 14 minutes into it, David looks at me and goes, Dad? And I said, yeah, absolutely. We are out of here. And, and we left. We, I took him out to breakfast. And Marilyn was just forlorn as she's standing there. And, and she, she, I just said, I just... I cannot watch a movie that is going to have this woman in for the entire movie. It won't work. Does she die early? If not, I'm not doing the movie. And so a number, a couple of years later, I had, I had knee surgery and Marilyn said, let's watch Pride and Prejudice. And being a captive audience where I couldn't drive, I couldn't leave, I did. I watched Pride and Prejudice. And I liked it. <laughs> it was, no, no, don't get carried away. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a very insightful and helpful movie. I, I, en- I enjoyed the characters, save Mrs. Bennett, and, and I, I got what the movie was about. And... And, and actually, in the middle of the movie, I was beginning to realize that it was my own pride and prejudice that had kept me from watching this movie. And, uh, and so I was having to humble myself before my wife and say, yeah, I do like it. Um, we can have the same attitude towards evangelism. We can have an attitude of, that's just... I. I just don't like it. It's just there are just there are people in the church who are gifted for that. I'm not one of those. I, that's not where I want to go. I, I'm, there's just there's just a an aversion at times, and so I, I'm hoping this message, this sermon, serves you in this arena. A man and his ten year old son were on a fishing trip miles from home. At the boys' insistence, they decided to attend the Sunday service at a small rural church. The father forgot to bring any cash, so he reached in his pocket and gave his son a dime to drop in the offering plate as it passed. As they walked back to their car after the service, the father complained. The service was too long, he lamented. The sermon was boring and the singing was off-key. Finally, the boy said, Daddy, I thought it was pretty good for a dime. (laughs) I'm trusting this is worth more than a dime to you today. Now, let's review a little bit. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem. They're traveling to Galilee, leaving some controversy behind. They make their way through Samaria. Not going around Samaria, which is typical of Jews because they were opposed to Samaritans. They saw Samaritans as racial half-breeds. They saw them as immoral. They saw them as pagan worshipers. So they were opposed to the Samaritans. Oftentimes they would go around rather than go through, even though the route through Samaria was much shorter getting to Galilee. But Jesus makes a decision. He makes, they're going through. In fact, in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says that they had to go through Samaria. They had to go through. And so as they're going through, because of these things, uh, these obviously oppositions to the Samaritans, 
John is setting us up as we read chapter 4. And John's gospel here does begin to provide us with a very clear picture, another example of what this whole gospel is about. John 20, 31, that, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. And it is in this passage, as we saw in the earlier chapters, we see people beginning to understand who Jesus is. And here in chapter 4, somebody who has found life in his name. And that was who we spoke about last week, was the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus speaks to, the Samaritan woman that is all about her immorality and broken cisterns and satisfying her life with things other than God, worshiping things other than God. And she encounters the Savior who has made his way into her world, who has made his way into her life. And as encountering him, She comes to faith. She comes to faith in Christ. John 20, 31 is resounding in the background of this passage. That she has begun to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And she is finding life in his name. In fact, at the end of this passage today that we're going to be reading, the, the commentary on this passage, the whole point of this passage is verse 42 in chapter 4, where the Samaritan woman goes back into the town, and we'll read about that, and the Samaritans of that town come out and they encounter Jesus, and this is what they, <clears throat> this is what they say. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's the point of this passage this morning. So read with me, starting in verse 26 or 27. Just then, as his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. For the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Father, thank you for speaking to us today through your scripture. Lord, now I pray that you would continue speaking as we dissect this passage, as we consider these words, as we give pause to think about what is happening here. Lord, help each person here to hear you speak, to understand what you are saying, and to bring that truth home to their own lives, that they may be Come more like you. Lord, please help me. Help me to serve this church this morning to exposit this passage in such a manner that these friends of mine meet with you. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that we say and all that we think. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin by asking you some questions this morning. Why were you saved? Why were you saved? Why did God choose you? What grand purpose does God have in saving you? Why were you saved? The scriptures teach us that there is both mystery and there is some clarity as to why God has given us eternal life. Romans 9 tells us that our election by God is based in his mysterious sovereign grace. He didn't choose you because you were bad or good. He chose you because he chose you. He chose you, as we read in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose you before the foundation of the world. So he chose you. He chose you to be saved. But why? We know how he does it. We know how he saves. In John 1, he saves because he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. In John 2, we see that this temple that you would be destroyed is going to be raised up. He's the resurrection and the life. And it is in his resurrection that we will be raised to life. In John 3, he's the son of God who loved the world and sent, and God sent his son that we might have eternal life if we believed in him. He tells us how. But why? Why are you saved? Why do you experience the gift of eternal life? I think in John 4... We're going to find out why. Why we have been given our salvation. And I'm actually, uh, the title of my message is Lift Up Your Eyes. And my proposition statement, which basically is, what's the point of this message? I'm actually going to give you as the very last thing. So I'm going to mix things up this morning. 
It may work, it may not. You may want your dime back when I'm done. <laughs> Two main points. We have been saved that we might become, number one, true worshipers of Christ. And we have been saved that we might become, number two, faithful witnesses for Christ. We've been saved that we might become true worshipers of Christ. And we've been saved that we might become faithful witnesses for Christ. Now, the first point is really going to be a reiteration of much of what I shared last week, but to help us understand what was going on from last week as Jesus is encountering this woman at the well as he's meeting with her and he's having this exchange, this conversation, this discourse with her and the life-changing experience that was brought about because of Jesus spending time with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman at the well. So the first thing is that we are saved, we've been saved, that we might become true worshipers of Christ. And that's what I said, John 4, 1 through 26. The result of our salvation is a changed life. If your life is not changed from encountering Christ, if you say you've come to faith in Christ, but your life is not changed, then you have not encountered Christ. That salvation is not yours. Scripture makes a clear argument that we are changed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 There is a change in our lives. And that change is designed to free us, to bring freedom from what slavery we were once under. Scripture makes these, these statements that are not very pretty, and they're not encouraging at all, and they don't describe us in nice ways. Scripture says that we are of our father, the devil. Scripture says that we are wicked, Scripture says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. No one does good, not even one. Romans 6 tells us about having been slaves to sin and being changed, that we are now slaves of righteousness. But slaves we were. Slaves to sin, worshipers of everything and anything other than the one who should be worshipped, God himself. And salvation has come to us that we might become true worshipers of God. This woman, this Samaritan woman, was her, her history, her background. The Samaritans, as you might remember, they were a mixture of Assyrian and Jews. When Assyria captured, conquered that area of northern of the northern kingdom of Israel they exiled they took into exile the Jews well the Jews intermarried with the Assyrians not only did they intermarry with the Assyrians and now were were a mixture which alone would have excluded them from the family of Israel but they also took on some of the pagan worship practices and mixed it with their Judaism 
And they went so far because of these practices that they even built their own temple in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelled. This woman was a worshiper, but she was not a worshiper of God. And prior to coming to faith in Christ, all of us worship something. We were created to be worshipers. We all worship something. Maybe just on a Sunday afternoon in the fall, you can see what some people worship. They wear their Viking helmets. They wear their redskin feathers. They wear their colors of their team. And they literally almost live and die with their football team. And it doesn't have to be sports. Obviously, that's my world. Maybe it's something else. People find multitudes of things to give their lives to, to worship, to honor. And those things, ultimately, the thing that we worship most is ourselves. The thing that we love the most is ourselves. Low self-esteem in my book is not a problem with people. It is too much self-esteem. We love ourselves way too much. And this woman was a worshiper. She worshiped. She worshiped and she found her satisfaction in immoral relationships. She found her satisfaction in something other than God. This woman was not a worshiper of God. And as one who is going to become a true worshiper of Christ, God, Jesus, wanted to help her to do two things. To lift up her eyes in adoration towards God and to lift up her voice in praise to God. That's the change. He wanted her to lift up her eyes in adoration to God and he wanted her to lift up her voice in praise to God. This woman, as we saw in verse 20, she began to understand who Jesus is. Our fathers, she said, worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus begins telling her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Jesus sought out this woman and changed her life that she became a true worshiper, that she began to lift up her eyes in adoration to God, and she began to lift up her voice in praise to God. Jesus reveals her heart and what she really worships, her broken cisterns, the, the, the water jar that she brought to get water, that was a broken cistern. What, what was going on in her life, Jesus was giving her living water. He was changing her. And her question about worship reveals that she's beginning to see more and more of what Jesus is communicating. She is asking, okay, if that doesn't work anymore, if Mount Gerizim doesn't work, if Jerusalem isn't the place we worship, where do I go to worship? Where do I go to be a true worshiper? 
is what she's asking. Where can I find the water that really does satisfy? And this is where Jesus changes this woman's understanding of worship. And and he's telling her, listen, worship is no longer about geography. It's not about where it is in Mount Gerizim or or Jerusalem. They're man-made places of worship. Worship, all temples are obsolete. Worship is now internal. Because Christ dwells in you. And now she's beginning to lift her eyes to heaven. And she sees who Jesus really is. And as a believer, she will also be one who lifts up her voice to heaven in praise to God. Like the Samaritan woman, we too have been saved to be true worshipers. We've been saved to be true worshipers of God. We've been saved to lift up our eyes in adoration to God. We have been saved to lift up our voices. The very thing you were doing this morning, that was first and foremost what you were saved for, that you would begin to worship God. When you come in here on Sunday mornings, this is the place where you should most rejoice in your salvation. The place where you should be remembering, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't born again. There are a thousand different places I could be this Sunday morning. But if I hadn't come to faith in Christ, I would not be here. I would be somewhere else. We were created to be worshipers. John MacArthur says this. He says, the supreme purpose and motive of every individual believer and every body of believers is to glorify God. The mission that flows out of our loving fellowship, our spiritual growth, and our praise is that of being God's faithful and obedient instruments in His divine plan to redeem the world. You see, the first thing that you have been saved for is to be true worshipers of God. And worshipers you now are. But that's not the end of the story. The story of the woman at the well doesn't stop there. We have been saved for the purpose of being faithful witnesses for Christ. That's point number two. As faithful witnesses, what are we called to do? Let me tell you. We are called to lift up our eyes and see the harvest. And we are called to lift up our voices and speak of Christ. As true worshipers, we're called to lift up our eyes in adoration. And we're called to lift up our voices in praise. As faithful witnesses for Christ, we're called to lift up our eyes and see the harvest. And we're called to lift up our voices and speak of Christ. Now look, verse verse 8 And verse 27, help us to see that the disciples were on a very different mission than Jesus. Look at verse 8. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. In verse 27, just then his disciples came back from buying food. That was their mission. They were on a mission to buy food. Now their mission wasn't wrong. They needed food. Jesus needed food. He's the Word made flesh. He was weary. He needed water. He also needed food. And so their mission to get food wasn't a bad one. But Jesus' mission had a higher priority because it was a spiritual mission with one specific purpose, the woman at the well. 
that woman that had been awaiting the Savior, although she never knew that. The disciples' mission was a natural one with a specific purpose, feeding their hungry stomachs. That's what they were, that's what they're doing. And as they return in verse 27, they come back from buying this food. Jesus has had this conversation and they come back and they marveled that he's talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Their response is interesting. Uh, They want to ask questions, but they don't. It hasn't taken them long to kind of get the drift that Jesus does a lot of things that belie explanation and that, I mean, you're talking about water to wine, money changers and and animals being driven out of the temple. Uh, I mean, there's just things going on that that Jesus does that just is beyond their comprehension. And this, this is one of them. They, but they know enough not to ask questions because there's the likely chance that his answer is going to confuse them even more. That they will be far more perplexed. In fact, that's exactly what happens here. They're, the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples gets more perplexing. They're urging him to eat. Now, I think they're urging him to eat because they want to eat. I think they're hungry. And, and being good men, they don't, they don't want to just, you know, I don't think they were munching on, well, maybe a few might have been munching on the way back from Sychar. But, but I think they're urging him to eat because they want to eat. And his response is both confusing and it's irritating. Think about this. It says, they went out... Of, Verse in, in, in verse uh, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, you just went all the way to town to get food for Jesus. It's hot. It's dusty. That's why he's thirsty. And you make your way in the town and you come back. And you've got, you've got his order. You've got his Reuben sandwich or whatever. And, and he says, oh, thanks, but I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? That's their thought. Okay, where did this food come from? <clears throat> he has a lesson to teach them. And it's a lesson that will ultimately change the world. You already have food. Where did you get it? And their response is a very familiar response, as we have seen throughout John's gospel in just these first four chapters. Already John has shown us a regular pattern of human natural responses in a spiritual situation. Jesus is trying to make a spiritual point. He's trying to help them see life spiritually. Think about the water to wine. They, were, they weren't thinking about the miracle. They were thinking, wait a minute, water to wine? But you always serve the, the good wine first and the bad wine last. Why are you serving the good wine at the end? They, they didn't get what was going on. The temple, he's talking about destroying this temple and raising it up in three days. And they're saying, what do you mean? Who can raise a temple up in three days? They were thinking, these Pharisees were thinking in the natural But even further, Nicodemus. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it spiritually. He's just saying, how do I enter my mother's womb a second time? 
And then even the Samaritan woman, Jesus is speaking of living water. And she says, where do I get this water so I don't have to keep lugging this water jar back and forth from the village? She's not thinking living water, spiritual life. She's thinking, okay, is there a pump in my house? How do we get the living water? They're all thinking naturally, not spiritually. And here again, the disciples are doing the same thing. They're thinking of natural food, not spiritual food. This is such a revelation of the human condition. We, we don't think spiritually. We think naturally. And that's why we desperately need God's spirit and his, it's his illumination to see the things of God, to see spiritual life. The disciples had gone to town to buy food. The woman was coming from the town to get water. Look at verse 7. A woman came to Samaria came from Samaria and came to draw water. So she's coming to town for the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. What do you think happened there? They passed each other on the way. Think about that. She's coming from the town to draw water. They're going to the town to buy food. One of two things happened. Either they didn't even notice her. Or as they walked by, they walked by with a superior attitude as Jews towards a Samaritan woman. All they saw was the natural. They did not see the spiritual. Think about that. Passing by. Their eyes, the disciples' eyes were on Sychar and the food they could get there. The question is, did they even see the townspeople who were in desperate need of salvation when they went to Sychar, when they went to get the food? They were getting food, but did they even notice? Because what does Jesus say in this verse? Look at verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's giving them a spiritual lesson. They saw a Samaritan woman. They saw natural food. They saw a town filled with Samaritan people. And what did Jesus see? He saw a woman that was going to become a worshiper of God. He saw a town full of people that were the harvest, that were coming to believe in him. Jesus, in verse 34, is saying, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Yeah, I I don't have natural food. I have spiritual food, and that spiritual food is my mission. My mission is more important than food. I live for more than that. Have you ever been involved with an activity where food just doesn't even pass into your thinking? Now, maybe some of you are not there, but I, 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 I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Um, when I'm doing certain things, whether it's in the garage working on a woodworking project or I'm out playing golf, I, I don't think about food. Food's not interesting to me because I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. 
I'm, I'm involved in something. I'm in the midst of it. And so food's just not important. And I can go, I, I've, done, I've numerous times played 18 holes, 36 holes of golf and not eaten a thing. I'm just having a grand time out there. And, 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 it, and I'm sustained by my joy of what I'm doing. That's on a natural plane. Jesus is sustained by the joy of seeing this woman become a true worshiper. And now she's becoming a faithful witness for Christ. There's verse 35. Lift up your eyes. See the harvest before you. Jesus is telling them, look, you missed it once. Don't miss it again. You missed the harvest as you walked to town. You missed the harvest when you were in town. Lift up your eyes and don't miss it now. They marveled that he was talking to a Samaritan woman, but they did not marvel that she had been born again. That's how natural their thinking was. Now, Jesus uses some what we would call Proverbs. Not Proverbs from the book of Proverbs, but the kind of Proverbs that we use in everyday life, like a penny saved is a penny earned, or you know, rolling stone gathers no moss. Those kind of little Proverbs. And here he says, do you not say there are four months and then the harvest? And then later on he says, for here the saying holds, one sows and another reaps. So he's using these little Proverbs to get their attention about what he's after here. He's after saying, look, the harvest we think about, the harvest you talk about, there's a harvest right now. Someone has sown. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, even myself, have sown into these people. And now the harvest is ripe. It is ready. Look, the fields are white to harvest. It is plentiful. In fact, in Luke 10, too, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. It is ready. Don't think of it naturally like wheat or barley. No, it's a spiritual harvest that have been sown into. And this Samaritan woman, she saw the harvest. She saw the harvest. Just then, his disciples came back, verse 27. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now think about this. She is an outcast. She is immoral. She's had five husbands. The guy that she's with now is not her own. She is a pagan. And she goes into town. She doesn't go to the well with the women. She goes by herself. And yet she goes immediately because she's become a true worshiper of God. Now she's becoming a faithful witness. And she goes to town immediately. She doesn't care about what people think about her. She doesn't care how they're going to respond. All she knows is come See a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, Jesus did not tell her all that, he ever, that she ever did. But when we encounter Christ and he opens up our lives and he changes us and we become true worshipers, all we know is everything has changed. And it has and so this woman becomes a faithful witness. She lifted up her eyes and she saw the harvest. And now she lifts up her voice. She becomes a faithful witness. She, listen, she was no theological giant. 
She, she could not speak of great doctrinal truths when she went into the town. She was an infant who had just been born again, but she knew what she had. She had living water. She left her water jar behind. She had living water that she was taking and determined to tell others about. John records now a miracle of epic proportions. They came to faith because of this woman. Many, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. All that I ever did. Jesus wanted the disciples to understand what was happening here. When he tells them to lift up their eyes because the fields are white unto harvest, go back to verse 30. She goes into town. She tells them, come see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And when he, Jesus, tells his disciples to lift up their eyes and look for the harvest, he's not talking about wheat fields or barley fields. He's talking about a group of people that are coming down the road from Sychar to him at the well to hear what this woman was talking about. The fields that Jesus was talking, the harvest that Jesus was speaking of were people. Were people. Do you see the harvest, he asked them. Here they come. You missed it earlier. You spent an afternoon with them buying food. Did you see them as a harvest? And listen, this was only the beginning of the gospel harvest in Samaria. Acts 8, 4 through 8, we see Philip going to Samaria and Samaria hearing the gospel. The seeds have been planted. They have been sown. Listen, we are a church that loves to worship Christ. I want us to be a church that loves to faithfully witness for Christ. There is a promised harvest. Now, Jesus is making a point. Sometimes, you know, listen, guys, you are reaping a harvest today and you didn't sow a thing. And there are times where you will sow and you won't reap anything. There are times where you will sow and you will reap. My next door neighbor in Atlanta, Tommy, I spent 15 years sharing the gospel with Tommy. I love Tommy. He's a friend. He is former Navy SEAL, former football player at Florida State University, big guy, rides a Harley, carries a 45. You're allowed to do that in North Carolina. Uh, just a wonderful man. And I shared the gospel with him for 15 years. And I move here and Tommy and I keep in contact. He has yet to respond to the gospel. But I've sown into him. Many, many years ago in Atlanta, I had a woman come into the office who was doing some graphic design. She asked me, what is this place? It was a Christian ministry that I was working at. And I explained it to her, shared the gospel with her. And she just looked at me and said, well, that's good for you, but I don't believe any of that. And that was that. Five years later, I'm in Piedmont Park. I just run the 10K Peachtree Road Race. It was July 4th. And we're doing, we had a group of folks in to do evangelism. So we're doing evangelistic drama. There's literally 
20 to 30,000 people in the park and we're doing evangelistic drama. And when we're done, this woman comes up to me and she says, do you remember me? I said, yeah, you're Selena. You came into my office five years ago. She said, yeah, I want you to know. Two months ago, I came to faith in Christ. Now, I just sowed a seed five years earlier. Her boss at work led her to faith in Christ. God works. There is a harvest there. What I so love about this verse in verse 36, it says that those who reap, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. There are people who are coming to eternal life. This woman at the well, these people from the town, they came to eternal life. You have experienced eternal life. And then it is so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. There is a promise of joy, of rejoicing as we sow, as we reap, as we are faithful witnesses, as we lift up our eyes and see the harvest, as we lift up our voices as faithful witnesses for Christ, we'll rejoice. John Piper said this. He said, I know my life here on this journey is very short compared to eternity. I know that this world is the battlefield of indescribable carnage as unbelief and sin send many people into temporal and eternal misery. I know that there is incomparable glory and joy promised to those who will suffer with Christ in the warfare of the gospel. And I know how prone I am to retreat from the field of battle to try and have the ease of heaven now without following Christ into combat. Though we can't atone for sins, we can take up our cross and endure hardship to lead people to the one who can. Charles Spurgeon said this, If you are eager for real joy, such as you may think over and sleep upon, I am persuaded that no joy of growing wealthy, no joy of increasing knowledge, no joy of influence over your fellow creatures, no joy of any other sort can ever be compared with the rapture of saving a soul from death and helping to restore our lost brethren to our great Father's house. Brothers and sisters, we, we are true worshipers of God. We want to be faithfully true witnesses for Christ. Jesus said that my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Spiritual life, your spiritual life is sustained by spiritual food. We, we need regular food. I get that. Who can live without ice cream and other essential food? Uh, I understand we need regular food, but life is more than meat and drink. We need Jesus, who is the bread of life. We need spiritual food, and spiritual food is doing the will of Him who has sent us. Sent us to be true worshipers, sent us to be true and faithful witnesses. Let me ask you this How is your spiritual life today? Is it stale? Is it tired? Is it weak? Is it just mundane? Are you lacking joy? Are you lacking faith? Is your spiritual life alive or do, do you need some food? Do you need some spiritual food? You're going to find that spiritual food as a true worshiper and as a true witness, a faithful witness. Do you see the harvest?
What is, what is your harvest field? Open, open your eyes. When you're going to the store to buy food, do you see the harvest? When you're walking down the street of your neighborhood, do you see the harvest? When you're interacting with other parents on baseball teams and soccer teams, do you see the harvest? You're already a true worshiper. Now become a faithful witness. Here's my proposition statement to end this morning. Great things happen when we introduce great sinners to our great Savior. Great things happen when we introduce great sinners to our great Savior. That's exactly what happened in verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I love this church. And I want to see this church experience the kind of life that God promises as we are faithful worshipers, true worshipers, and we are faithful witnesses. We are true witnesses. This, the life of this church is first and foremost determined by God's Spirit. But it's also, to be, it's also determined by our faithfulness our obedience to the commands of Scripture, to living the way that God has called us to live. So, brothers and sisters, let's have a heart for evangelism. Let's have a heart to see the lost come to faith in Christ.